0: hey everybody welcome to the eternal student i am dan clark and i'm joined as
1: always i'm a good friend sean keating and today on the show we have our first guest on the eternal student mike mcginnis a drug and alcohol counselor who spent over 40 years working with adults and mainly young people who have been affected or afflicted by substance abuse, whether it's their parents or themselves. Um, And we get into some really interesting conversations. Mike tells us why he got into this field, talks a lot about his personal story, um, which is really moving and really powerful. And I think um, something we can all learn something from and um, give some great advice for what we as educators, parents could do for these uh, adolescents. And then also for many of our listeners out there, what are some things you can do to maybe get out of a rut, maybe um, not be thinking some of the thoughts you're thinking? And I just thought it was... um, I was extremely moved and, and just really, really thought it was powerful.
0: Yeah, it's great to have um, a real life person in the uh, studio once again to talk to. And I think you'll be hearing from uh, more people like Mike to kind of share their story and kind of, you know, drop in little nuggets that all of us can soak up, you know, whether you're an adolescent or an adult. I think all the things Mike talks about today, they, they transfer across all you know, ages and walks of life. So great conversation with Mike. And um, if you're looking to check us out, go ahead on over to our new Instagram page at uh, the creative, wait, not the creative, the eternal student. There we go. I don't even know if I have the right handle on here. The eternal student, eternal.student.podcast. There we go. Nailed
1: it. Everyone yeah. will be right on that. <laughs> um, but,
0: uh, but but seriously, if you if you got something that you want to, would like to hear us talk about, or want to send us some uh, some words of advice or some, some ideas for um, topics coming up? We're open to that slide into our DMs. Give us, um, give
1: us some feedback. So, once again, that's eternal.student.podcast. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode with Mike McGinnis on The Eternal Student. I think the main theme of empathy comes up time and time again. And Mike is phenomenal at what he does and is a great storyteller. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Mike McGinnis.
0: I I sang in a band when I was young. (laughs) Really? Yeah. What kind kind of music? It was rock, of course. I mean, what re- do you mean? I don't know. I mean, just a second. Maybe I don't know folk or oh, some no. reggae. Seems like <laughs> reggae. <laughs> yeah, man, that's right. Up. Yeah, I
2: know what you're saying.
1: <laughs> where'd you Where'd you grow up?
2: <laughs> Superior, Wisconsin, okay. up by Duluth. Yeah. Oh yeah, we had the. I was in several bands actually, but the last one was a group called Zipper Z I P P I R because you know that's the cool way of doing it. This was back in the uh, <laughs> early and mid '70s, and We were a house band for a bar called Helen's, and part of the deal was they were going to give us a commercial. And so this would be great. So the commercial, and I can quote it, the commercial went like this. Zippers down in Helen's. <laughs> <laughs> then this voice comes on and says, "What? Zippers down in Helen's?" And he says, you mean like this. And then you hear this zipping noise. No, no, no.
1: Oh, that's funny. Was What'd horrible. you play? I sang. Yeah, I was you just gonna say lead okay. singer, probably was right the here. Nice.
0: So, what, what what were your hits? What were the? Oh, well, we go-to you know jams? we didn't write
2: our own. I tried writing a song, uh, <laughs> and I never ever 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 did that again. That was horrible. I actually did it in public, and oh, that was easily the most humiliating moment of my life. <laughs> and I, and I'm an Irish Catholic life, boy. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so I've got plenty of humiliation. Yeah. Uh, we did a lot. Uh, we had t- we had twin guitars. We had two guitar players that were really quite good. So we did a lot of Ullman Brothers, and we did a lot of, of uh, Peter Frampton, and, and we did some Queen, and we... Uh, Leonard Skinnerd, you know, we were Southern Rock. Was hits, probably yeah. our our heavier leanings, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. We had a great time. Was That's that awesome.
0: was that super common for I mean, young kids to just group together and start like were you, I mean, were there we multiple bands? I mean, you were in, you were in multiple bands, but were there others that just kids got together? Yep, started a band. Yep, and and into a bar they went.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually pretty common. I, in fact, nowadays when I talk to kids and they and they and they talk about it. I, I, one of the things that amazes me, you don't get paid. Because we got paid. Even if all we got was 50 bucks, we got paid. Uh, and, and it was a lot of fun. So, you know, we're down in somebody's basement and we're playing music. And and the bands that I was in, um, most of the guys were not into substances. So that really wasn't much of an issue. It, it uh, I won't say it was never an issue, but it wasn't very common. We we just had a great time. It was a lot of
0: fun. Yeah, I was always, I'm kind of jealous of that. I guess, time period because it was always a dream of mine to just have some sort of, you know, a band to be in yeah. where I could be you. I'd be the lead singer. And, you know, it, it was, it's probably not as much of a rush, you know, performing in front of, you know, half-drunk patrons at a bar. But it's probably still fun to do, right?
2: Well, yeah, it was. We had, you know, we had like a wall of martial amps. We were We were a loud band and there was almost always some burnout right out in front sitting there with his head (laughs) up against them saying, turn it up, man. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, yeah, and we had our fans. We had, uh, oh, we played, are either of you guys familiar with a group called Wishbone Ash?
0: Nope.
2: Wishbone Ash was was an English group, and their thing was they they played flying Vs, uh, twin guitars again, and they were really very good, and they were around for quite a while. But they were never they were never as big here in the U.S. as they were over there. And they had a song called Phoenix. And Phoenix was a really it's – a, it's a long song. It's probably about 8 to 10 minutes long. And we would play it even longer sometimes because it was a lot of fun. But you can't dance to it because it's one of those that starts out slow and then starts yeah, going really like, fast and then it goes slow and – and that was the thing that, you know, really kept us from fame, I suspect. <laughs> those those musical choices. Those, the all pickup. the musicians in the area really liked us. The rest of the folks, uh, let's just sit and listen, because you know they're going to go slow again.
0: <laughs> so how do you take the turn from the lead singer of Zipper into, into you know. An alcohol and drug counselor? Yeah. How does that work?
2: Well, it actually it worked pretty well. I was... Um, so I grew up in an alcoholic home, which always sounds very dramatic. My dad was a doctor. My mom was a housewife. And, and you guys know probably dozens of students like me and have known them forever and ever and probably would never have known any of this. My mom and dad did almost all their drinking in our house, so we were not public display. Uh, my dad was a very well-known, well-liked doctor. Uh, to this day, when I go back to Superior, you know, I'm almost 67 years old. I still have people saying, "Aren't you one of Doc McGinnis' kids?" Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so he was well liked. I went to school with a half a dozen kids that were named after him. So <laughs> yeah, but Superior is only 25,000 people, so it's not like you know. It's it, so um, so that was that was just it. You know, it was like living two lives. By the time. I started getting to the music, which was actually like in junior high. Things were peaking up, and the music was a great relief. Get me out of there. Uh, All throughout high school and the different bands that I was in, again, it was was a great relief. And then I went to college in Superior for about a year and a half and didn't have a clue what I was doing there. Uh, I was working in hospitals because being a doctor's kid, it was easy to get a job in a hospital. And by the time I was like... uh, 17, I was working as an aide. And um, and my senior year of high school, everything kind of exploded in our house. My mom ends up going to treatment after um, she, they're involved in a car accident that wasn't alcohol-related. But she goes into the hospital, and she goes into withdrawal. And so then they start looking more closely because they had asked her, Mrs. McGinnis, do you like to drink? Oh, I like a little bit of wine. Well, yeah, she liked a, a little bit of a lot of wine. And so <laughs> she... And then they caught on that they also, that my mom was forging prescriptions on my dad's prescription pads, which was quite illegal. And so they gave her a choice. They said, you can either go to treatment or we're going to charge you. And so my mom said, I volunteer for treatment, which, by the way, is the same model we worked the Vietnam War off of. So, uh, so my mom goes to treatment and she stays sober. My dad, in the meantime, is still drinking and his health is starting to go downhill because he's Along with being an alcoholic, he was diabetic, and he was a fairly brittle diabetic because of his drinking. And he was, turned out he was manic depressive. That didn't come out until later on, though. So my mom, after several months of trying to live with my dad while she's sober, and he's putting pressure on her to go back to drinking, uh, my mom does an intervention with a former partner of his and a local judge who was just a good friend of theirs and a friend of ours that was in AA, and uh, and it, that was quite the exciting thing. None of us were involved. I'm from a big family. Again, Irish Catholic. Mm-hmm. There were eight of us, and I'm number five. And all of us said, no, we're not doing that. That's crazy. And so they did this intervention, and my dad continued to refuse. And finally, they said, well, Jim, if you're not going to go get help, we have to go to the Wisconsin Medical Board and ask them to suspend your license because you're dangerous. And he was. He was showing up in emergency rooms drunk, and nurses were covering for him, and other doctors were, and... So uh, so that was quite exciting. So my dad leaves the house telling us he's never coming back there. That, by the way, is the clean version of him telling us he's never coming back <laughs> there. Sure. And he goes to treatment, and he went out into, in North Dakota. Uh, we, didn't want, we wanted to make sure nobody could find him, so we went to Mandan, North Dakota. The place that he went to, eventually I went to and trained at. But, but anyways, uh, that was the first time we did family counseling, which... God, I hated that with all of my heart, and uh and and uh, with the whole family. Oh yeah,
0: all eight kids. Oh yeah, <clears throat> we we went to
2: my mom's treatment for about a half hour, as I recall. Uh, we met this really, really, really nice woman. Her name was Marion Mann. I still remember. Ma- I got to know her years later and made many apologies because we were we were quite difficult. Uh, of the eight of us, that was. My brother Jim, my brother Joe, my sister Gitsy, her real name was Elizabeth, my brother Pat, and myself, we got there, none of us wanted to be there. As soon as someone said, hey, let's talk feelings, no, no thank you, we don't do stuff like that. We've learned how to live with each other. Feelings can't be a part of this. And so she's trying to get us to open up, and as she's doing it, she's sharing with us about her family, just like I'm sharing with you guys. And and finally it reaches a certain point where my sister Gitsy says, you know, Marion." It sounds like your family's all fucked up, and, and you should probably go home and take care of them and leave us alone. And then we got up and left, and that was the end of that oh family session. Oh, my section. gosh. Yeah. You are probably like, yeah, get to you. I mean, to it, go. Was, it was. All the way home, we congratulated her. For the first time, you turned that big you, bazooka of a mouth in the right you direction. finally did something. Yes, I did it right. Well, then we went out to North Dakota, and and I didn't want to go do this, but my mom told me it was either that or move out, and I wasn't ready to move out, so... Okay, so we go out there and I'm looking for Marion Mann and we meet uh, Phyllis Roberts. and Phyllis was nothing. <laughs> Phyllis stood about, about six feet tall. She was a former prostitute out of Duluth actually, and she smoked a, a cigarette holder that I swear was this long. <laughs> All my brothers and sisters will say the same thing, and she had a mouth on her like, uh, like a longshoreman. She could peel wallpaper from 50 yards. So we're terrified. I mean, we're just, what, what is this? And we're in the group. So all right. this is the way I always prompt this with everybody. We get into this group. We're the only family in there. There's my dad and all of his people. We don't know anything about this. Phyllis walks in, looks at a guy, and says, go up to your room and pack your bags. You're out of here. And he goes, what? And she says, yeah, you're done. You're out. And he says, they're going to put me in jail," she says. "Not my problem. You aren't doing anything. You're going. You're out of here," and so the whole room is all disturbed. And sitting next to Phyllis's desk is a is a dentist. I still remember his name because uh, his name was was Alex, but she always called him Alley Cat. And he was a big suck up. My dad told us this. Yeah, he's just going. He'll disagree with everything she says. <laughs> so so we're watching all of this, and our eyes are getting pretty big. And and Alex speaks up to to Phyllis and actually says. Phyllis, I, I, I don't I don't think you should I don't think you should throw him out like this. I think you should give him a second chance. And Phyllis leans back. She had her she had her cigarette holder with her too. And she takes a sock off and says, Well look at this. Alley Cat's finally found his balls. <laughs> so at that point all of ours <laughs> fell right out of her pants. <laughs> and then uh, then she started with our family and she started working everybody around. In fact, I've shared this with some of the kids. Um, I'm on the far end of the circle because I learned as an Irish Catholic boy that if you sit in the back of the church, you don't have to go to confession uh, because Matt will get over first. And I'm thinking, she can't get all the way around to everybody between now and (laughs) 4 o'clock, so I'm going to buy a day. So I'm sitting on this couch watching this, and I'm hearing stuff I've never heard. My brothers and sisters are talking about things that went on that I had no idea. What? When did that happen? Where was I? What was this? And I, you know, and my mom is tied a chair and stuff. And then Phyllis plops down in that chair right next to me. And I've got like goosebumps running up and down my arm because I hated. Intimacy was not. I, it was, I was very uncomfortable. Then she put her arm around me. And when she put her arm around me, those goosebumps ran right across my back and down my back, and I thought I was going to go right, out of the, right through the roof. And then she leans next to me. And this was actually the most important moment of my young life. She leans up close to me and she says, you know, you're not fucked up. You're just screwed up. And I started to cry Mm. because that made sense to me. Because I thought, I'm broken. Nobody knows it. Nobody knows I'm broken. And I don't want anybody to know I'm broken. I just want to get through things. Uh, I, I college, I didn't know what I was doing in college. I had, I, my, the thing I hated the most is when somebody asked me, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I don't know. I knew I didn't want to be, uh, I, I didn't want to sit behind a desk exactly. I did, wanted to work with people, and then from there on, I don't know. And so, um, so this just messed me up, because everything I thought I knew, suddenly I didn't know. Suddenly everything, the way I thought the world was, spun. And for several months, I just I felt confused and angry and frustrated. And um, then finally began to talk because I was not, I was a very outgoing guy. I could make friends very easily, but I was the guy that always listened to everybody and had lots of advice for other folks, but I wasn't one to share. If you were my good, close friends, and by the way, there were only two of these in in high school, uh, you knew my middle name as Francis because I hated my middle name when Mm -hmm. I was young.
0: Oh, lighten up, Francis! Right, that's the old line <laughs> from Stripes.
2: Oh, all of that, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it it, it was it, it. I finally just began to talk, and I actually started out talking with a couple of my friends that I had known for a long time, and it was weird because I had I hadn't realized this yet. What's very common with kids of addicts is they hook up with other kids of addicts. We look for what we know. We look for what we're familiar with. We're the group. We never talk about our homes. We never, you know, you're not coming over. We don't talk about our summer vacations in particular. We don't talk about ourselves. Uh, we tend to, we like to tell a lot of jokes. I was always very funny. Being funny was not hard. In our house, that's how we got through a lot of stuff. Um, but it was never really talking. So here were these two guys. Independently, I, I one was Tom Misfield, And I said, Tom, this, was, this felt like such a big moment, Tom. i got to tell you something I've never told anybody. My mom and dad are both alcoholics. My dad, And he looks at me and says, yeah, my dad is too. Oh, Oh, and the same thing with a uh, guy I was uh, I was a roommate with. We shared an apartment. Uh, in fact, he told me that his dad be- would become violent, and my dad put him and his brother and sister and mother up in a hotel a number of times because his dad was drunk and violent. And the, and to this day, his mom, whenever she's still alive. My dad died twenty years ago, but but. Uh, She'll always ask about me and she'll always ask about my brothers and sisters and that blessed Dr. McGinnis, and I'm thinking, yeah. I mean, he was a confusing guy for me. I loved him and I was proud of him and I hated him and I couldn't stand being around him and I hated myself for feeling the way I felt. And these were, I mean, these were not uncommon things. So, so here I am working in this hospital and my dad, my dad ends up going through a relapse and he goes back to treatment a second time, and he's in and out of AA for a while. Uh, and um, and the the hospital I'm working at, at my dad's um, urging, opens up a treatment center in Superior. And I, I asked if I could get on that staff. And that's really when I began to
1: think. Why do you think your dad urged for that to happen?
2: I think there were two things. One, I think my dad was interested in it, but my dad also had all the ego problems, you see, with an awful lot of addicts. And I think there was a part of him that wanted to say, see how well I'm doing. I'm doing so great that I'm going to help get this thing off the ground. And it was a great thing. And it was, uh, my dad, eventually what happens, I have, I have way too many stories. Uh, eventually what happens is my dad had lots of health problems. He had, he had several heart attacks. He had the last rites 13 times Yeah, he died a couple of times, and they brought him back. Uh, From the time I was probably in about second grade, I was always waiting for bad news. Any phone call before 8 in the morning and after 10 o'clock at night is bad news. Um, And so my dad ended up having to have brain surgery done because his blood supply to his brain was down to about a quarter because of clotting and, uh, and closures. And he was like the seventh person that Mayo had tried doing shunt work with, uh, but taking something. And and he was not a good candidate because he was a diabetic, but they had to do it. It was either that or they said he was going to die. We ended up rushing my dad from Superior down to Rochester in the back seat of his car, with uh, with state patrol running ahead of us to get him down there in time. And uh, and so they moved to Rochester to be close to my to, to be close to his doctors. Well. In fact, the anniversary of this is next week. Um, one day, my mom was going to give my dad a ride because he can't ride. He can't drive. His hands were affected as he wasn't, didn't have as much motor control as he needed. It improved over time. And then my mom collapsed. And my dad actually knew what was going on and began to administer CPR and was able to get the attention of a nurse who lived across the hall. And she called the ambulance and took over. And my dad laid down on the couch and had a stroke. And so my mom is on one end of St. Mary's and my dad's on the other. He's building to a massive stroke and my mother's just had an aneurysm strike her brain and she's brain dead. There's no activity. And so I'm, I had just been married just shy of two months. In fact, the last time we were all together, all all my brothers and sisters and my mom and dad, we had the one and only picture taken of our whole family. Hmm. Uh, And so we, we get to Rochester, um, And the next day, my mom dies. And that was the last time my dad drank, uh, Was just before that. My dad, what he told me for years after that, he he outlived my mother by quite a while. In fact, he remarried uh, once and had a girlfriend even when he died. He outlived that wife, too. Um, He just remembers saying uh, a prayer, just saying, please, God, don't let me drink today. And he said that's the first time he could remember where he didn't feel the urge to drink. My dad started drinking when he was a teenager. Lived over, he, grew, he grew up over in Caledonia. Uh, he was a... He was a uh, uh, they were poor. They were dirt poor. You know, he grew up uh, during the, the Depression. And uh, his dad was a town marshal. But he didn't drink. His mother uh, didn't drink. He, his dad had a shot of Irish whiskey after church on Sundays. That was it. Uh, but my dad uh, had an uncle who was the town drunk, who he loved very much. All my uncles did. And uh, and that's where he got introduced to beer. In fact, my dad ended up dying from Alzheimer's. But one of the clearest memories he always had was the first time he drank. Hmm. So, I mean, it's it's just... Uh, it was a, it's a powerful, that had a powerful influence on him, and as such, it had a powerful influence on all of us.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many. Thank you for sharing that story. First of all, that's pretty oh, yeah. pretty just amazing, and I think um, one of the things we've talked a lot about is just, you know, trying to share stories with kids because yeah. if you can try to relate to them, you might be able to trigger them to share a little bit, and we've talked about empathy quite a bit, and I always kind of joke, you know, if I was running for some type of political office, which thank God I'm not, um, empathy would be what I'd try to try to run on is just literally putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And you you talk that story about that nurse and, and what she told you. And I just think, um, we see so often with kids, it just takes somebody putting your arm around them and relating and saying, I, I know like I I've been there or it's okay and as you've gone through this now with young people um i'm sure you've seen every story where parents are alcoholics parents aren't there's rich people poor people it, it 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 doesn't discriminate you know it it affects everybody and so what what have you seen that is really like kids especially are longing for to i guess get on the right path
2: i i would the, uh, my opinion would be what most not all but what most of our kids are looking for is how do they how do they develop intimacy and i and and I mean that in terms of personableness how do i feel how do I feel accepted by other people um, if i if I tell someone this is what I think or this is how I feel will it, can I expect it will be uh, accepted or do I think I think I'm going to be laughed at? I think a lot of our kids struggle with feeling alone. I think that's a very common thing. Adolescents, I mean, would you do it again? I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> I mean, I, and I'll make jokes about it, but honestly, I wouldn't do it again. Yeah. I I was just talking with, uh, with my grandson, who's 13. He's in eighth grade. Ugh, ugh. Because you don't need adversaries. I mean, if you have them, that just makes it worse. But all you need is a mirror and... Any number of things that you feel anxious about or unsure about, or uh, I, I, one of the things I remember is I, I hated saying I don't know because I was I just thought that makes me look like a fool. That means I just don't understand things. I don't see things.
1: So you talk about you know, and I think being in, you know older generations talk about this hardness and like we don't share feelings, and I think we all have different family members that have kind of har- had that in them. Um, and different, different ways, whether it's a grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, like we just, you know, I knew he loved me, but I, he never told me or things like that. Um, what, what do you think has that changed over the years? Like, what have you seen different with families over time? Like just the American family and what is the different problems maybe that you've seen? Because it seems to me like that hardness and not willing, um, it's been pretty common.
2: Yeah, I think it has I think it's um evolved in some ways. When when I was early in my career, now I, I became a counselor when I was 21 and and uh worked with adults primarily during that time. And the stories that I remember most with them was it, as being very common was um abuse, violence uh Belts you know that kind of thing, getting you know go, go pick your switch out and and uh, this was not uncommon again, whether I was working in North Dakota or here in Minnesota. I've worked mainly here in the min, in uh, the Midwest, uh, worked in Duluth for a number of years, worked down in northern Iowa and and that older generation being like my parents' generation, that was more of an issue with them. Um, you know i i worked through the vietnam era and all of the trauma that that was involved with and and all the struggles that went along with that but it, but in terms of family there was a speaker i saw back in the in the 70s um h stephen glenn he's dead now but uh he used to do these presentations and he made he made a huge impression on me with this he said uh so, um People will say that our idea of family, or, or change is slow in our communities. And he says, you can look at one generation, there's been a massive change. And he's talking about the difference between like my parents' generation and my generation. He said, uh, you go back to, to that older generation, um, divorce was very uncommon. Uh, the idea, in fact, the old, uh, you made your bed, you, you live with it, you, you sleep in it. Uh, but uh, parents parents stayed together. A family was made up of mom and dad, brother, sister, grandpa, grandma, uncles, aunts, cousins, and the neighborhood. The neighborhood was a very big part of child rearing. Uh, parents knew parents. Parents talked to parents. Parents did uh, uh, they did things all together. Uh, if uh, if I walked in the house and my mom gives me a stern look, and she says, "Mrs. Mannion called." I know that Jerry Mannion, Jim Mannion, and Tom Mannion are all grounded. I know that I'm grounded. My brother Pat's grounded. My brother Joe might be grounded, and I know Mrs. Ponder's going to call any minute now. And it's going to be Jim and Tom and the twins, and they're, we're all going to be grounded because they talk to each other. Uh, they would they would call each other up and they would say, "Hey, I saw our boys downtown. They were just messing around. And nothing seemed like everything was fine. You know, no big deal." Um, parents talk to parents. We, we felt like that was important. That we all were interested in that. And you look at my generation, and I think it's even worse now, is we live much more isolated. Uh, we don't appreciate that kind of interest. We don't see that as interest. We see it as um, invasive. If, uh, if you guys are, If you guys are walking in through a grocery store and you see one of your students and a parent and you think, oh, I'm so glad I see you guys. I need to talk to the two of you. What parent thinks? Oh, this is good news. Thank God we <laughs> ran into that. <laughs> yeah, you know but they don't see us as their partners. They see us too many times as their adversaries, yeah. and yeah. and that we're not equally interested in them. At a time, why? When
1: we, uh, what um, happened? Where did we go wrong?
0: <laughs> well, changing. I mean, for teachers, it's probably just the there's just a changing role. I think
1: and technology, I suppose and
0: there was a I have got into a conversation once that I've always
2: i thought was very good that one of the significant changes was when we went to a two income family when I was a kid, a lot of families, certainly not everybody but a lot of families kids went home there was a parent one of one or the other was going to be there um and parents spent time with us um we've gone to a it, it's that's just not there. We rarely have parents that stay at home anymore. You, you, if you want to have a quality of life, you have to have a couple of incomes, if not more. Uh, and so it's not uncommon that you're going to have kids spending more time alone, less time talking with their parents. When parents do talk, they're tired. You know, they've had, they have had a hard day. This is not just an excuse, it's a fact. And, they, and yet parents, at the same time, don't want other people to presume that you should raise my child. I am a parent. This is, this is my kid. I know right from wrong. Over the years working in the schools, I wish I had a nickel for every time I heard a parent complaining to the school about, you know, it's not your job to teach them morals or values. That's my job. I, that, you, just, you teach them math and you teach them spelling and you teach them science. That's all they need from you. And no, that's not. You know, I think it's truer now than it's ever been that it does take a village. It takes a lot of people. I don't think it's ever really not been that way. Uh, one of the most important people for me when I was in high school was my my social studies teacher when I was a senior, because he talked he talked to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, in this, and this may seem very small, but it was very important to me, he was the only guy who ever asked me if there was something wrong. Now, I was very good at putting things away and keeping things off my face, but the By the second half of my senior year, I was just not doing well. I was staying up late trying to get my dad to bed, and my grades were starting to go down. This guy's name was Nick Baker, and Nick one day stops me as I'm walking into class and just asks me, are you okay? Now, I lied to him. Yeah, I'm fine. But I I hung on to that like you wouldn't believe, like a death grip. And when I was 23, I wrote a letter to him telling him that there's not enough gratitude in the world For him to have done that and it meant more to me than he'll ever know but that uh, I will always be grateful to him and here I am now again I'm heading for 67 I tell this story to all kinds of people Nick has passed away a long time ago but Nick had the kind of heart that I needed and you know where do we find those well we can't always and we don't always find them even at home chemically dependent people this isn't one of the things about it chemically dependent people this always sounds bad but Chemically dependent people are self-centered. Uh, and I mean, in the truest sense of this, there's a joke in my field that's, that's not really that funny when you think about it. It's uh, an addict spends the whole night talking about themselves and at the end of the night they say, oh, I'm sorry, I spent the whole night talking about me. Let's talk about you. <laughs> what do you think about me? Uh, and, uh, <laughs> but that's, that is how it goes. Yeah. The co- it's just like with a lot of our students. Adolescents, teenagers are generally self-centered. Most everything that happens starts off with "What does this mean to me? How does this affect me? What how do I feel about this? What does this do to me?" Um, you know, we learn to be more aware of things around us, and the more we do that, the bigger our world becomes, and the greater we're able to appreciate all those things. But when you have kids who are struggling, again, whether let's say it's well again, a chemically dependent parent or a mentally ill parent or some chronic condition, poverty, um, most of their energy is going into survival. It's just simply going into, what do I need to do today? And if I'm a sibling, oftentimes, you know, it's how do I help my brothers and sisters? And sometimes um, just this general sense of bleak, not necessarily hopelessness, but just this overwhelming sense of, it just doesn't get a lot better. Where do I find hope? And and I think that's one of the, the challenges to our kids. With this, with COVID, you know, where do I find hope? Uh, and again, in a classroom, you guys would be a source for that.
0: Yeah, and I think, I mean, just based on things that kids have said to me, that's an area where I think teachers in general could probably put some effort into or some work into because a lot of times, even though their job is to teach kids, a lot of them can't even talk to kids it's it's like this I mean I think they have a, a, a lot I mean a lot of teachers I think have a hard time remembering that they were once those kids yeah and they've turned into you know what their version of a teacher was when they were a kid where there was just this wall between them but every time I finally am able to crack through the wall of a class, it's just like you know, it'd be. It's just crazy how much they're willing to to say and and to tell you, and they're they're starving for it because it's just. I don't think it is very common, or you know, across all classes, for it uh, a, a classroom to be, you know, in that type of what culture, or you know, they don't have the ability in some classes to actually talk with a teacher instead they just feel like they're you know answering a question yeah whereas when you try to have a conversation that cracks that like cracks something in them Yep. kind of like that moment where you know phyllis put her arm around you yep absolutely and you know that's a, a that story is such a great example and you know you just wish you could do that have that moment with everybody but i mean i feel like that's an area where I don't know if we te- like I don't think that is taught. I mean Phyllis probably didn't that's probably just something that came naturally to her, right? Yeah, I think so. But is it possible to to build that into like the, the the toolbox of a teacher even if they're if they're struggling at it maybe?
2: I th- I think there is I think part of it is uh, can we be comfortable with being open with another human being? Yeah. Uh when you, when you were talking about this what One of the things I think our professions share, and not just with ours, where do we find our rewards? Now, you know, if you have, for instance, you can have students that will get A's and you can look at that and say, well, you know, this was a good year with these guys. But then you have those students that don't get A's and some of those students that struggle. And, And then how do you feel about that? In my profession, recovery is far from a sure thing. I can work my tail off never really knowing is this thing that I'm doing actually that useful. We can talk about all the, all the studies and what they'll all perform, but ultimately when it's all said and done, I don't know. Uh, when I've talked with people who want to get into this field, I've, I've said this is what I believe because I'm almost never, almost never the first person to meet with, whether it's a student or, or some, somebody else, somebody else has. And I, it always feels to me like it's a bus stop. The bus stops, the person gets off, I get to spend this amount of time with them, and during that time I give them everything I've got to give, and then they get back on the bus, and then they move on, and there's other people down the line, and probably 99% of them, I'll never know anything about them, I'll never hear a word. Either that or it'll be on the front page of the of the free press, at which point <laughs> someone will say, hey, isn't that the guy you worked with before? <laughs> Good work. You know, so, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how many ways do you get challenged, and, and where do we find that? Uh, this is where I think the re- our, our, our relationship with our colleagues becomes so important. Do we feel free to be able to talk about what's working for us, what's not working? Do we have supervision that actually works with us? Do we, do we have a supervisor that, that really wants to supervise with us, or do we have someone that wants to critique us? Most of us don't seek out a lot of critiques i want to critique i put a mirror in front of me and i go oh what the hell did you do Mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah. so So, what's the
1: best part of your job
2: it is still meeting all these all these people i'm at a point in my life and i'm sure you guys you know if you i don't know you, i'm at a point in my life where i can say i've met tens of thousands of people and got to play a part when they got off the bus um Many of them I actually still have some contact with. In fact, just this morning, uh, birthday wishes to a young lady I met when she was 13 and now she's 37. Uh, We still make contact periodically. We'll go to coffee. Uh, One of the first clients I had back in 1975 um, tracked me down to Winnebago. He's living in Kansas someplace after uh, like 30 years. Uh, just to tell me that he was still sober and he just and he was thinking about me, which I mean it's it's a wonderful thing, but I know you know I played such a small part of those thirty years, but you know we never never none of us ever get to know what's meaningful. The guy tell me, you know, you said something to me when I was in treatment and I've never forgotten it. And then he told me what he said and I knew I didn't say it. (laughs) In fact, I I knew his roommate said it to him. So (laughs) I had to tell him, you know, that was really, so but it it is, it's getting to be a part of, the world is a crazy place. I don't think it's an awful place. I never have thought it is. There's a lot of bad things in the world. I I find so much more that is is great. When I, like when you asked me, when I how'd it feel being back in the building? I love being in this building. You know, I worked in the Mankato schools for 25 years, and it, I loved walking through there, seeing kids, just saying hello. Um, The fact that they don't, like, look at me like I'm a jerk, or, or spit at me. My, 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 for a number of years here, I was, as I've gotten older, I was always afraid that I'm getting too old for this, and I, you know, I'm not relevant anymore, and I was just waiting for some kid to walk in and say, hey, Gramps, what do you know about drugs? And then one day my grandson who went to school over at West walked in and said, hey, Gramps, what do you know about drugs? And it was, oh, oh. (laughs) But, I mean, kids, if we, what I find is if we can accept them and if we're genuine with them, because that's the whole, I mean, that really is the deal. If we're genuine with them, they are much more likely to be genuine with us. You know, I'm not, I'm not every kid's cup of tea, but most kids I get along with really well, and, and I'm very grateful for that. I with, I will commonly thank them for being so patient with me and for sharing what they have, because I mean that. They don't have to do anything like that. So it's it is, it's powerful. It gives me great hope about the future. I wish I could take a lot of parents with me and say, watch this, listen to this. Yeah, they're going to scare the hell out of you. You scared the hell out of your parents. Every generation, that's a responsibility that we have to meet. Um, you you watch them, and you'll see lots of things for you to feel really hopeful about.
0: And so how, how did you crack your shell? So, I mean, there was that moment on the couch with Phyllis, but you talk about, you know, now you're able to obviously share quite a bit about your life. You went from guarding <laughs> everything to, like, to be right Here's stubborn ass Irish <laughs> Catholic to now. <laughs> so how do you, how, like, what is that? Is that a, is that a long process? Yeah. I mean, it,
2: it wasn't, it wasn't easy. I, in fact, I told my wife if, if I would have met her a year before, I don't think she would have been interested in me. Um, I I wasn't the guy I was by that time. I purposefully set out to make, to make some changes, one of which was I just want to feel better. Uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time being angry and frustrated and depressed and and looking for someone or something out here to make me feel better. It wasn't, the answer wasn't going to be out there. I mean, the, there were a lot of things out there that were valuable, but I wasn't using any of them. It was first I had to get by feeling ashamed I had to get by feeling guilty. I had to stop doing some of the things. I used to lie a lot. I lied when I was like a teenager. I lied about all kinds of stuff. I lied about stuff I didn't need to lie about. And I, and I felt bad because ultimately I didn't want to be a liar. So um, I, had to, I had to take those things back. I had to stop doing that. You know, if I, if I told you a lie, part of it was I needed to come to you and tell you. that I said that to you and it wasn't true and I'm really sorry. One of the things I'll, I'll talk with kids about is I'll ask them, do you, do you know the purpose of an apology? And it's not to get right, to get right with somebody else. It's to get right with ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's we need to accept us. We need to accept our own values, our own, the things that, w- that are important to us. We're not going to match up with everybody perfectly, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we need to live within those guidelines. Those are the ones that we have already said, this is who I am so then be that person because if i'm that person i feel better i live better with myself so it's 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 how do we make peace with us
1: so uh, i got a lot of questions here but resentment is one that i think i see in kids a lot to their parents yep um, you've screwed up my life you've making these you know made these choices and so they'll hold on to a lot of bitterness um, and what you're talking about right there to me is forgiveness forgiving not the person who did it to you, but really forgiving yourself. And what did you experience with your parents? Did you ever feel that resentment? hugely. And then how did you get over that? And then just what have you seen in young people?
2: Well, part of it was I had to come to terms with the idea that all these things I was resentful for, I used. I used them to justify my behavior. Uh, My mom, when she sobered up, wanted to be a mother. And so, she, meaning that she wanted to, like, say, these are guidelines, these are, these are restrictions, can't do this, got to do that. And my response to her was, oh, great, after all these years, now you're going to come in here and do this? And I'm, I'm already, like, 18 years old, and now you're going to tell me what I can and can't do? And that would hammer her, and she'd feel guilty, because her guilt was easy to access, the thing was, um, my problem was never my mom and dad's drinking or using of any nature, and it wasn't it wasn't their behavior. My problem was how I felt and what I did with it. So yes, I was sad. I, I was disappointed a lot. My mom and dad didn't uh, didn't do all the things they said they were going to do. Did my mom and dad love me? That to me was a fundamental question. I wanted them to love me more than alcohol. Alcohol was never an issue in that fashion. My Competing with alcohol was like trying to compete with their heartbeat. It had nothing to do with them personally. It was something that was just there their had, and it was not a choice that was made. Uh, it was a fact that they had to contend with and I had to contend with. Did they love me? Yeah, they loved me. They loved me to the best of their ability. It was a whole lot better after they got sober. Um, I've Again, I count myself very fortunate. Uh, I had my dad sober actually longer in my life than drinking. Uh, I was 22 when my dad sobered up, and, I was, uh, and he was sober for uh, 23 years and a month. And in that time, I found out my father was a very, very different man than I thought he was. I thought he was just arrogant, and I thought he was cocky, and I thought that people didn't know the real him. And some of that stuff was true. There were things he was cocky about. There was also a whole lot of him I had no understanding of. And and to learn that I had to listen, I had to I had to get past. You know, too many times when we have resentments, it's like those fill our ears and we can't hear the rest of it. Um, so, first, the idea that I am responsible. In fact, this is what things in the AA community. If uh, there's there's AA clubhouses and ours in Superior, they had a great big banner, and I went to meetings for families. I went to Al Anon. And this big banner said, I am responsible. And I I, I hated that thing on site, just despised (laughs) it. But it's true. and, And the beauty of it is this, is if you're going to be responsible for the things you've done wrong, the poor choices you've made, you also get to be responsible for the things you've done right. And then the rewards that come along with that, because I never felt like I deserved rewards. I needed, again, I needed to make peace with me. And that meant accepting me all the way. It meant accepting all the people around me, letting they are who they are. Uh, they, they, my mom and dad didn't choose addiction, but they, they acted the way that they acted. My mom, my mom was, I loved my mother with all of my heart, but she was not always an easy person to live with. My dad was very difficult. It was a crazy lifestyle. I thought it was the worst lifestyle in the world. Now I've met many, many people who have had it so much worse than I had it that I just feel like a pansy. Uh, <laughs> well, really, I mean... When we talk about at-risk kids, you know, at, some of the being at-risk is not a bad thing. It's just a fact. Here are the features of my life. These are all things that can affect me negatively. Some kids, despite that, have an extraordinary uh, penchant for resiliency. You know, so you look at this kid and no, he's not an A student. He's getting C's and maybe even he's getting some D's. But then I also know at home. He's got a mom or a dad that's, that's a meth addict and, and maybe a parent that comes and goes and they don't have much money and he's working and picking and bringing money home. How do I look at that kid and say, you know, you've got to do better in school. Your, 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 your priorities, you got to get your priorities in order. I think priorities sometimes are very difficult for other people to see. They're not as obvious. So, we again, back to that listening part. How do we listen to it with, with that part of it? Help them celebrate what they've got. Help them find the ways where they can be successful. That's you know that's too many of our kids just don't think that they have that. One one of the things I'm going to uh, I'll often ask kids is what are their strengths? They don't know. They don't know what they are. I can name off generally with after just visiting with a kid for about ten minutes, I can name off a handful of things that clearly you know are you sharp? Do you have a good sense of humor? Uh, do you listen very well do you have a good empathetic uh, empathetic nature do you all of those things these these aren't things that they're going to think about you know they're gonna th- th- too many times they think in concrete terms like do I, you know where do we live and how, how how are my clothes and stuff like that helping them to find those things and hold on to those things and build on those
1: yeah and dan and i the reason we kind of hit it off is cuz we've we've tried to see things for more than the standards we got to teach in the classroom and trying to trying to be that kind of light i guess for for kids in any capacity we we can be but it just really um seems to me to be the most important thing and I'm teaching like a new class this year and uh, it's just a science of mindset and we're, we're sharing, we're journaling, we're doing some introspective things and learning about a lot of these students and, and similar to what you've, you've you know, experienced, they all have a different story. They all have situations far worse than many of us have ever had it. And um, they really need to see themselves differently they need to have someone believe in them and see themselves in a positive light. And I think that's kind of what I feel almost called to do as an educator and as a coach and is to pour into them to help them see themselves a way that I think anyone wants them to be seen, but parents aren't perfect. We know that. And we had our parents, and we know that they had their their issues, but everyone does the best they can. And I just... I don't even know what my question is exactly, but I think if we could help these kids see themselves in a different light, it changes everything.
2: Well, I think that's a, I think a big piece of what we do is we invite them to look through our eyes and listen through our ears, and we act like a mirror to them. and We say, this is who I see. This is who I understand. Now, that's not to say this is the ultimate truth, but it's to say, you know, you say this about you. You say you don't know this or you don't care about that. I've heard so many kids say, I don't think I care about anything anymore. And yet when I listen to them, it's obvious they do. There's a lot of things that they care about, and that that's probably the bigger issue is that they're overwhelmed with it. A lot of our kids, and I think this is growing up skill. They don't have the vocabulary to express how they feel. Sometimes I'm gonna, I'll am i ask a kid, uh, a kid will say, you know, my mom or my dad said this, blah, 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 and, and, and it really makes me mad. And so I'll ask them, can you... Take what you just shared with me. Can you peel the words back? What is it that they're feeling that they're saying that? Uh, I had somebody (laughs) teach me this a long time ago. It's such a simple little thing. Uh, Only about 10% of the questions we ask we need to ask. Because, you know, we need to to ask it because we need more information. That's generally what we're looking for. The rest of the time what we're doing is we're seeking to validate something we already Mm -hmm. believe to be true. So... And questions too many times don't address what is it that we're really thinking about. Um, And so what I was taught was, ask yourself, what am I feeling that I want to ask this question? And make a statement out of that instead. Um, One of the things we had to contend with in my family was there was a rumor going around that my dad was cheating on my mom. And the way that this presented itself was um, my dad would leave for work you go out the back door, get in the car, pull out of the driveway, and then the phone would ring. And there'd be a woman on the phone who'd ask for my mom, and then she would say, you know where he's going, don't you? You know what's really going on, don't you? You know what's happening. And my mom would start crying, and she'd drop the phone, and one of us would pick it up, and it would be hung up. And we never did find out who it was, but it had to be somebody who could see our house. So here I am. I'm like 16, 17. My mom ends up hospitalized in a depression. I am I'm angry. I'm angry at this person who's calling. I'm angry at my dad cuz I'm afraid it's true and then I feel guilty because I don't know that it's true and what if it's not true? And I feel protective of my mom and I feel like I'm failing her cuz I can't protect her. So I got all this garbage roiling around inside me. When my dad is in treatment, I look at him and I say, "Have you been cheating on mom?" And he looks me right in the eye and says, "No." Okay. Now, do you think that satisfied me?
1: <laughs> no.
2: I walked away thinking he's a liar. I know he's a liar. He's just a big liar. And it just, and it just sat there until about two, three months later, and we had a blowout. He and I, and my dad, I was not a guy to fight with my parents. I was passive. Every, you know, I, I would go down the basement and listen to fights through the floor upstairs and figure out, is anybody going to get hurt? And if not, I'm staying down here and I'm going to draw. <laughs> So he and I had this big argument, and I finally started saying all this stuff and, 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 t- and telling him how scared I've been and how angry I've been and how guilty I feel. And that changed things between us. It didn't make everything better. It isn't like if you talk truth, everything cleans up. But it changed the conversation, and we started moving in a different direction. That's when I started finding out that my dad was such a different guy than I thought he was.
1: So do you feel before your dad passed you got oh, I guess closure and yeah. got to know your dad on a level that yep you're satisfied with
2: yeah the thing you know it was funny i was talking to my brother pat he he went into pre med i went into pre med neither one of us wanted to be a doctor uh it was just we just wanted our dad to be proud of us he never wanted us to be a doctor uh he wanted us to be happy but we never really asked him that part we just thought this is this would be how it was after my dad had to retire from medicine, that was when the brain surgery and everything happened, my dad started an entirely new life. He was very active in AA. He sponsored tons of people, a bunch of doctors over in, at, at the Mayo Clinic, a bunch of other people. He was active in the Senior Citizens Coalition in Minnesota. When Kui uh, uh, was the governor, he was on the, on the seniors' um, uh, board with, uh, with the state of Minnesota. He did all, he did all kinds of things, what, and he was very happy. Um, I found out my dad was a far better human being than he was a doctor, and he was a pretty good doctor. But he was a human being. He made mistakes. Uh, he wasn't going to go to our my brother Jim's wedding because my brother Jim was going to marry a
1: Lutheran.
2: <laughs> <laughs> now, just so you know, my dad has a younger brother who was a monsignor and a younger sister who was a, a nun, both of whom told him, Jim, the Vatican has said there's no problem with that. With Catholics marrying Lutherans it's, it's, it's all good in fact uh, my uncle uh, Father Joe uh, did, the, did the service and my dad said I don't care I'm not going to go to that wedding Lutherans and Catholics shouldn't marry that's when my mom told him you're either going to go to a marriage or you're going to go to a, a divorce it's going to go one way or the other then my dad when he remarried married a Lutheran
1: <laughs> <laughs> no way
2: oh yeah yeah a lot of things ah, changed a lot of his attitudes it was sounds I mean, a lot like my dad, but that's one of the things I admired about my dad was that even even at a later time in his life he was working to try and learn things to grow adjust to yeah. learn
1: yeah
0: and so what it, so he you said he kind of that was that the one day the day that your your mom died was the day that, that changed the things changed does it have to? I mean, in your experience with, you know, young people and addiction, does it always have to be, I mean, it seems like when there are those moments that are just those gut punching moments, those are the, the most opportune times for change, that radical change it, is that, I mean, what, what else, what's the other option or is it all people figure yeah. it out before rock oh, bottom?
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. Cause there is no rock bottom. You're gonna. Uh, some people will disagree with me on that. I'm good with that, but when, in my experience, everyone who has said they have found rock bottom, they also find a pick and a shovel and they find a new way to go even deeper. Um, well, but but they That's do. Okay. Uh, some of the people who I have most admired, uh, the, the fellow that helped my dad um, get into treatment the first time, his name was Dennis Murphy. He was a great guy. He was actually the head of the program when I was an aide in it, and and. Dennis was wonderful to me and to my family. I went to school with his kids. Dennis had been sober for over 20 years, and he relapsed. And when he relapsed, he was ashamed, didn't want anybody to know about it, so he would hide. He would go to his cabin, and while he was there and deeply intoxicated, he fell down some stairs and hit his head and bled to death because his blood alcohol level was so high it wouldn't coagulate. My father grieved him. I grieved him because Dennis, that was not Dennis. That's not the commentary on his life. Most of the people that I know who are in recovery will tell you, they've had they've had all kinds of gut punches. Uh, they've they've they're high drama because, I mean, when we talk about loss of control, there's loss of control. Uh, in this county, we have a drug court that's been around for, oh gosh, it's got to be over ten years, and we've got people in there who have done extraordinary things, been through all kinds of deals. For most of them, it's actually when they reduce all of that drama, and they go in, and they go into a different direction. Uh, so it's it, it it's it's going to be when do they, when do I, take responsibility? The the philosophy in the recovery program that I've always appreciated, is one day at a time. I can do this one. Today is manageable. I can't I can't predict tomorrow. Today I can make decisions about what I'm going to do, what I'm not going to do, and sometimes it's not going to be today. Sometimes it's going to be this hour, and sometimes it's the next few minutes. But I put into play all the things that I know that work for me. And most of those folks, when they put their recovery together, part of it's going to be who are the people that I look to that inspire me, that support me, that help me help me stay honest with myself. Uh, most of the, Most of the dishonesty that most addicts, and I think a lot of us, quite frankly, will do, isn't going to be with other people. It's going to be with us.
1: So, as you you said, you're gonna this is your last year, and you're going to retire yeah. in the spring. Um, have you thought much about that? Have you thought about reflecting at all about the career you've had, the life of work you've done, and how you look back on it? I mean, we heard about how you started, and now as you're kind of thinking about all the people and all the stories and all the how you got into this and obviously hugely influenced by your story. Um, you know, when you come to that, everyone kind of thinks about that, oh, retirement and, and all this stuff. And how do you look at it?
2: Um, I, uh, I'm i primarily, I'm going to retire because I think it is time. Have um, And I've had an extraordinary career. But, but I would have to tell you, I think I've had an extraordinary career because of the people that were around me. They taught me a lot. They gave me a lot. I don't know that I've ever had an original thought in my life. Uh, people taught me things or showed me things or exposed me to things that, uh, that affected me. A lot of the things that I used to think when I first got started have gone by the by because I've grown and changed and 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 all those people, all those stories, all those lives—they've all changed me. Um, I don't know. I've had people tell me I should write a book, and I'm thinking, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I really don't think that. I th- I think my I think I've had a wonderful career, and I think it's been an extraordinary career, because it's been it's been extraordinary to me. I know a lot of people who have had careers like mine. I mean, they've. They're going on around us all the time. I don't know if I want to write a book or if I want to go out and just find different ways of, of having the same kind of thing happen. Um, I've, I've reconnected with a lot of my old friends from high school and found out that I could have had so much better friends if I would have just simply opened my mouth and looked around. Uh, I can think of all the ones that bugged me, and you know what? They have less and le- I can't pull their names up as easily as I used to. But there's all these folks that we, we share things now. We talk about stuff, and I'm thinking, I think I'd like to go spend some time with them. My wife, I've, asked, uh, I've been accused over the years of being a workaholic too, so uh, I would like to, to do things with her. I mean, we've done stuff. We've done some traveling, and you know, we've been to Ireland several times, and we've done cruises, but I'd like to go around the country. I mean, stuff like that. I have a camera that I've
0: invested money in that I really ought to invest time. <laughs> You're in. pot <park> committed. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel you. What? So thinking about, I mean, as you leave the field, I guess there's, I mean, there's always gonna be kids, and those problems are probably always gonna be there, right? And I mean, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm sure it's, you know, pretty on a case by case basis or student by student basis or you know, yeah, on what what is you know, the right thing to do when they're going through that, you know, you talked about adolescence, just being that bonkers time when, you know, one thing that happens to you will haunt you until you're 32, Mm -hmm. which while, when you brought that up, like (laughs) I had about three instances that popped (laughs) in my head and I was thinking like, holy crap, that is (laughs) the worst. Like it's just one thing can happen to you. And then it just kicks you in the gut for you know 15 years and so what what do you what what is that one i don't know overarching strategy or piece of advice that you know you just wish that you could have told yourself i mean for or, or, or kids in general
2: if i could have if i could go back and 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 just say one thing if I, if i could only say one thing i would say don't be so afraid I spent way too much time afraid of what might happen or what could happen uh, than what did happen. Um, there's nothing wrong with being afraid. There's nothing wrong with uh, not knowing things. There's nothing wrong, and those were all things I was, I was afraid of. I was not, I, w- I, I needed to simply act upon what I needed, what, what was going on with me. I needed to feel free. I didn't feel free. Feeling free, I think, is a very hard thing. Uh, I was afraid people would laugh at me, or if I would say something, they would think I was stupid. Um, I, you know, my my grades, <laughs> I should have had better grades. I'm a bright guy. I know I'm a bright guy. I knew I was a bright guy even when I was in high school. What I didn't have is self-discipline, and um, and my, and I, Spent too, way too much time in my head. I was a good one for thinking. In fact, again, my brother and I were just talking about this the other day. Uh, my brothers and sisters will, will make comments about, you know, when we were young, you used to stay up really late, and you'd be down in the basement, and, and I would draw. That's usually what I was doing, is drawing and listening to music and sometimes listening to things upstairs. And, and, uh, but I spent way too much time alone thinking about stuff that I needed to talk more about than to think, I needed to say these words out loud. Like I, I'm afraid. What does this mean? Or am I? One of my fears was I was mentally ill. I was really afraid that I was mentally ill, and nobody knew this. And and so that's why when Phyllis <laughs> Phyllis made her comment, it was like what? Um, when I, in fact, when I went into uh, to to apply for this counseling program that I trained in. They'd never taken a guy under the age of 30 and I was I was 21. And uh, I didn't know it but there were some guys in Minneapolis who had sent letters on my behalf
0: to get me in.
2: So anyhow, we had to do an I had to do an MMPI. You guys are familiar with the MMPI? Nope. Nope. The Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. It's one of the most studied psychological tests ever. This was the first edition. I think now we're into the third edition it's 500 and some questions, like 550 questions, true-false. Uh, and and there were, were ex- some of the questions were kind of like the one that you had earlier, and some of them were really different. And some of them were really weird, like I talked to angels and something <laughs> like that. So, and I knew enough about this that you don't lie, because I'd actually scored these, these. And I knew from scoring them you can't mess with this test. If you, if you do that, that's what it's going to say is you messed with the test. So I do the test, and I'm in front of, uh, of the, the, the uh, uh, head psychologist. His name was Dr. Olaf Gadebring. He was directly from Sweden, and he looked like his name sounds. He was a smallish man with white, swept-backed hair, high forehead, black rimmed glasses, a bow tie, and suspenders. and He yeah, had a very heavy accent. And so I'm sitting there. And he's looking at this and he's looking at me and he looks at this. And then he says, you have a fear of being mentally
0: ill. <laughs> 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 and I think I said, ha,
1: <laughs> <laughs> ha, oh, that's, that's awesome. I mean,
0: that's pretty, I think that's pretty dead on for, I mean, not just kids, but also, oh. you know, adults. Half the things that we.
1: What's wrong with me? You know, just that idea yeah. of
0: fear, <laughs> yep. you know, like being, af- just being afraid. I was just telling you. Yesterday you asked me to come talk to your class and I was saying, Well, I'm a I'm afraid that I might reveal something that you know, somebody might take and like <laughs> you know, turn against me judge and then my me life is destroyed yes. and it's probably not it's it's too much in your head, you know? It's it's yeah, it probably not Yeah. That yeah, we bad. just
1: did that in my class and we all shared a a little project we call our hero, our highlight and our hardship of our life and yep we had to talk beforehand, like, what are you guys feeling? And they're like, we're scared. We're, we're nervous. We're afraid of what people are going to say. So we kind of made some ground rules of what we're going to commit to as a group. And like, we're not going to share this outside of the classroom and we're going to be respectful and we're going to listen and we're not going to judge you. And, um, they shared some really powerful things, but, um, I think I've just, yeah, I've learned a lot today, Mike. And, and, and I think our listeners have learned a lot. I know we have a lot of teenagers and college students and young adults and I know we have a lot of adults in general um, but I just love talking to people and I love hearing their story and you know we just really enjoy learning new things that we can try to use in our classroom and try to inspire some kids and and one of the things we hope from this is that some kids out there might listen to our show and listen to your interview and, and just be like oh Okay, I'm not the only one or like someone else has been through it or I'm, I'm not fucked up. I'm yeah. just screwed up.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh, what a great wisdom that was. Well, I appreciate being able to do this with you guys. It was very nice. I, uh, you guys thinking of me, terrific. So yeah. anything I can do, always let me know.
0: Well, we might have you back on cause I'm sure you got more to share. Oh man. <laughs>
2: I'm Irish. If I haven't, if I didn't experience it, I'll make it up and it's <laughs> sound like I've been there. So that's right.
0: Thanks Mike. <laughs>